Well, let's open our Bibles together to Job and turn to chapter 38. And let me pray with you before we begin. So, Lord, for one last time now, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. We love the biblical truth of being God taught. One of the promises of the new covenant is that they will no longer say to one another, know the Lord, for all of them will know the Lord because they will be taught by the Lord. And so, Lord, in measure as you have bought the new covenant promises for us in the blood of Jesus, the blood of the eternal covenant, we lay hold on that promise that you will be our teacher, that you will open our hearts and that you will subdue our wills where they rise up to resist the truth of your word and that you would make us clear-headed and affectionate in our feelings for you and for each other, for the lost, for the nations. So, Lord, let the ripple effect go out from this little pebble dropping this morning for thousands of miles and thousands of years, I pray, for the glory of Christ and the good of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before I jump into Job, I want to step back and say something from the book of Philippians. In fact, you might want to look at Philippians with me, even though I told you to look at chapter 38, because there is a, a troubling dimension to the New Testament and the Old Testament when it comes to talking about prosperity. And God meeting all of our needs and so on. And we all love the verse 19 of chapter 4 of Philippians. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. So there's a, a New Testament version of one of those sweeping promises that bother us in the Old Testament when it talks about the righteous experiencing so much benefit and so much freedom from difficulty. And one of you pointed out to me some verses I, I passed over in the book of Job uh, that talk just like Eliphaz, you know, if you're righteous or if you love God, then every need will be met. Every need will be met. And so the question then rises here and by implication elsewhere, what is a need? What is a need? Do you qualify the word need or do you qualify the word every? Or you say, I'm not a Christian because things go bad for me. doesn't feel like every need is being met all the time. Now, there's an answer to that question right here in the context, and I'll just direct you your mind to it. Go back up to verse 11 of Philippians 4. 
Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And I remember growing up, we would memorize verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And never look at the context. And I think I was probably 29 years old when I saw the context. I can do all things including hunger. Has anybody ever expounded that verse to you? In, If you're in Christ and you have his power, you have the wherewithal to hunger. That is to go without food. Or to use another phrase there, to be abased, be lowered, be crushed, be ignored, be belittled, have less. I can do all things. Through him who strengthens me. I can be without food. I can be without clothing. And I can be without esteem. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It, it always had the triumphalist echo in my growing up that I can do all things mean I will have, I will have clothing. And I will have food. And I will have esteem. And I will get victory. That's what the all things meant in my mind, and in the context, it's not at all what it means. You know, when Paul lists his life in 2 Corinthians 11, danger on the highways, and danger in the cities, and danger from false brethren, and five times I received the 39 lashes, and three times I was beaten with rods, and I have been in prison, and I have been a day and a night in the sea, and I have been rejected and I have had many sleepless nights and I bear the constant burden for my anxiety for all the churches and, 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 and. Those are the all things for which he has strength to endure. As well as I have learned how to be uh, abundant, how to have abundance. When I am weak, then am I strong. Christ's Grace is magnified in my calamities, and I will all the more gladly boast in persecutions and calamities and hardships. 2 Corinthians 12. So, we have a contextual argument that the every need of verse 19 cannot contradict verse 12 and 11, to give him the benefit of the doubt, and therefore, every need does not mean all the food you want and all the clothes you want and all the job you want and all the relationships you want. But all that God deems fitting for you to have for his glory. Now, if that's a faithful handling of this contextual teaching, then we have a, a, a biblical handle to go to some very other hard texts like Matthew 6.33, seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added to you. In the context, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? 
wherewithal shall we be clothed? Don't be anxious for those things. The nations worry about those things. You seek the kingdom and all these things, clothing, food, drink, will be added to you. How much? Say it in Sudan. How much? Answer, all you need to glorify God. Which may mean none. When John and Betty Stam were martyred, they were in their underwear. And it wasn't glorious. Their heads were chopped off in their underwear. I read that in their, in the little biography. That they were taken out early in the morning, caught off guard, forced out of their house, humiliated to the core, paraded through the streets, bowed down. She was forced to watch as they chopped off her husband's head, and then they chopped off hers. So, were all things added unto them as they sought the kingdom in China? Were all things added unto them? Romans 8 says it another way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, with the right hand of God who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or persecution or distress, or famine, or nakedness, that's food and clothing, or sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And the all things are famine, and nakedness, and peril, and sword, and persecution, In all these things. So as she watched her husband in his underwear get his head chopped off, if she had faith at that moment by grace, which I believe she did, she could close her eyes and say, Conqueror! Conqueror! In all this, we are more than conquerors to Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. I want you to go away with a theology that can handle that and not feel like you're just grasping at straws, but you have texts. You have a Philippians 4, 11 to 19. And you have a Jesus who not only says... All these things will be added unto you, but some chapters later says, many of you they will kill. Be faithful unto death. And you have Romans 8. Doesn't get any better than the great eight. The Puritans used to call it the great eight. (laughs) That's the height, that's the Himalaya of the Bible, is the great eight. There are a lot of Himalayas in the book of Romans. Chapter 3 is another one. Well, that's a preface just to try to give you some categories for handling texts in the Bible that seem to be so sweeping in their promise of blessing. Like 
My God will supply every need. Well, he will. But he defines need. We don't define need. And when he supplies it, we bow submissively and thank him for giving us all we need to glorify him. A need is what you must have in order to so live that God gets the glory. He knows what you need. He will not let you be tested beyond what you are able. Don't just use the word tempted there. That reduces the meaning of of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 too low. They're the same word in Greek, testing and tempting. They're no separate words, pyrosmoser. And, And if you use the word testing, you see that it broadens it out. He will not let you be tested beyond what you are able. Not just tempted. We think tempted means he won't show me a a pornographic magazine that I can't turn away from. Well, that's a small application. But testing, then we're talking about relational collapses and health collapses and job collapses and everything that you could possibly be tested by. He will not let you be tested beyond what you are able because every need that you have will be met. The need to endure, the need to glorify him in and through the famine, the nakedness, the peril, the sword, the hardship, the calamity. He uses those words. Okay, that's preliminary to this last word that we get from God in Job. So now we go back to Job 38 to 42. A little summary now. He's been lying in unrelieved misery for months. Remember that word months that we saw in chapter 7. Sores all over his body. Seven sons and three daughters dead, all of his wealth taken away, a wife who temporarily at least has given up the faith and suggests that he should curse God, and three friends who start well and finish badly, and he at the beginning also starts well, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil? Grace was given to Job to be so triumphant and and do so well so that all the angels rejoiced and Satan was chagrined and the test was passed. And God was valued above children and valued above a believing wife and valued above animals and valued above his health. God was valued. So that he stayed with God and he affirmed God and he blessed God and he vindicated and justified God. And all heaven rejoiced and many people, no doubt, in his circle of relationships marveled at the worth of God in the life of Job. And then it gets drug out and these friends of his begin to simplistically deal with his suffering in terms of a principle of justice that if you're a big bad sinner you get big bad suffering and if you're a really big good person you get big good prosperity and that principle that so many people have for 29 chapters got weaker and weaker and weaker until it aborted in the silence of of Zophar and was proved to be wrong and so it didn't hold and then Elihu comes on the scene with his anger, his young indignation, and he poses the problem very differently. 
He says, Job, you're wrong and they're wrong. They're wrong because you showed they were wrong. But you're also wrong. And you're wrong in two ways. You're wrong to talk with excessive righteousness about yourself. You've overstated the case, though you're a good man. And you're wrong to call God your enemy. He's not your enemy. And you called him your enemy and you dishonored him in that. And the right interpretation, Job, would be to say that God is your sustainer, your friend, your father, your lover, your surgeon, your doctor, your good physician. And what he's doing is shaking you through this suffering so that the sediment of remaining sin is stirred up. Yes, he called you righteous. Yes, you were a good man. And all of us have sinned. Righteous sinners, we called it. And then he stirs it up in order that it will be exposed, in order that he might, like a good surgeon, remove it, and then you would repent and you would be much more godly, even than you were before. And so there are two basic functions of suffering in the book of Job, it seems like. The first one in chapters 1 and 2 is to display the worth of God in the allegiance of his suffering people. To display the the glory, the worth, the value, the satisfying excellence of God in the steadfastness, the allegiance, the faith, the trust, the satisfaction of his suffering people. That's first. And then Elihu gives us a second glimpse as to what God is up to and why one would suffer. And it is that we might be purged of remaining pride. And the word pride, which came out a lot yesterday, is going to come out even more this morning as we let God talk, which will confirm the fact that that's, that's the root sin in the universe, you know. Pride is the, is the root of all other sins. And uh, Adam and Eve uh, got us started in this by arrogantly rejecting the provision of God to take care of them and saying, we have a better idea of what will make life go well. Life will go better if we know good and evil by eating of this tree. And so they became independent, proud, self-reliant human beings, which everybody in this room is, except by the grace of God. We are arrogant, selfish, pushy, we will have it our way kind of people. Even, even the nicest little sweet ladies in this room <laughs> are arrogant at root. You, you have your little sweet, nice, soft ways of being arrogant, but you are. Even if you're a nice southern lady, you are arrogant, except as you have received Christ and he has begun to, to do a wonderful redeeming work in your life, whether you're a big, pushy, blustery man or a nice, sweet, quiet lady, God has to do the same massive work to overcome what we are and that is proud and vain and selfish human beings. I have seen it in my 54 years in every human being, even in the most godly people I know. And I could name some, but that would be a terrible thing to do. <laughs> so I won't do it. So you will find God now, as he begins to speak in these chapters, Talking about pride, just like Elihu made pride a big deal. And Job, though he was a good man and a righteous man, 
at the bottom down there, there's this sediment of, of pride that will not be entirely gone until Jesus, in the twinkling of an eye, transforms us into the likeness of himself so that we are perfect in the age to come. But right now, we're not. And therefore, all of us are candidates for surgery, and all of us are candidates for greater sanctification. And we should long for it, and we should pursue all the means of Scripture short of suffering so that God um, might not have to use suffering. But I want to clarify something here. You might draw the conclusion from what we've said, well, we're back where we started, really, with suffering correlating with pride, so that every time I do suffer, I should think, I must have been a really proud person. But you can't do that in this book. You cannot do that because Job is called the best man in the East. Therefore, the magnitude with which God dealt with him in terms of his suffering is not owing to the magnitude of that sentiment. That will not hold. You cannot make that stand. There is no correlation between the magnitude of our suffering and the magnitude of the sediment of our ungodliness. God simply apportions in his freedom who gets how much pleasure and who gets how much pain. And there is no, in this life, I don't think, no figuring out why one person gets a lot and one person gets a little. You can't draw the conclusion Oh, the person that got a lot of suffering must have had a lot of sediment. And the person that got a little, they didn't have hardly any remnants of corruption left in their lives. Neither experience nor the Bible will let you make that. We leave the proportion in God's hands. So now Elihu is finished. He has said what he has to say. Neither Job nor God criticize him. And, and at the end of his speeches, he hears... And he sees a thunderstorm gathering. Literally. And this is the approach of God. And God is going to speak out of the whirlwind. I don't know how he did it. Way back then, you know, before we had a Bible, uh, God was going to speak. And he spoke to people of old in many and various ways. It says in Hebrews, and here he comes and he's going to speak out of a thunderstorm. Verse 38, verses 1, I mean, chapter 38, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Answered Job. Now, Elihu has just spoken for six chapters. It's as though Elihu and God have, have two things to say. First, Elihu speaks, then God speaks. But God speaks to Job, even though the last six chapters have been the voice of Elihu, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkened counsel by words without knowledge? Now, you might think, aha, that's a criticism of Elihu because he's just spoken for six chapters. So God is asking Job, who's that? That's not the way you should understand this verse. He means, Job, who are you to darken counsel without understanding? That's, who the, that's what he's asking. Now, how do I know that? Because in chapter 42, verse 3, you want to flip over and see it. You have this same word repeated that God spoke in verse 2 of 38. Now, Job is going to quote God with it in verse 3 of chapter 42. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
That's God's word to Job. And Job answers, I have uttered what I did not understand. So that parallel between 42.3 and 38.2 keeps me from thinking that God was really criticizing Elihu there when he said, who is this that counsels, darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Elihu is done and he's out of the way. Now, God's got his turn to deal with Job. And he says, Job, what's going on here in the way you've spoken for the last 29 chapters? For a while you were doing so well, but you have said some really questionable things. You have darkened counsel, words without knowledge. And now we, we get to hear God. And, and we have a lot of chapters here of God talking and I, I'm not going to just read them through, but I, I'll, I'm almost going to read through because there's so much good here. I want God to be heard here, not me. And so we're, we're just going to go paragraph by paragraph and pick, I'm going to try to pick out the key question. This is God now, as it were, saying, okay, Job, you've had me in the dock for 29 chapters, querying me, wondering how I can give an account for myself. Let's just Switch here for a minute. You get in the dock. I'll ask some questions. I'll be the prosecuting attorney here, and I'll query you about a few things. And that's what's, that's what's going on here. So Job is on trial here now, not God. Which is the way it ought to be, by the way. Don't ever put God on trial in your life. You're on trial always. And your judge has justified you. I'm going to close with that later, but chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, God now focuses. He's going to do some some geographic questions here, focuses on the earth. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. The answer, of course, is you weren't there and you don't know how I did it. Verses 8 to 11 focuses on the sea, not the earth. Who shut in the sea with doors? When it burst forth from the womb. Of course, the answer is God did. Not Job. God set the limits to the sea. You don't know how he did it. And you couldn't do it if you did know how. Chapter 38, verses 12 to 15. Focusing on the dawn. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place? And the answer that is... You never did it. You can't do it. And I've always done it. My mind goes back about, what, 30 years? When did I graduate from Wheaton? 68. Ooh, it's more than 30 years now. Um, to a class with Clyde Kilby in romantic literature. And we were reading Wordsworth and Shelley and Keats and Byron. But he began every class by reading Job these chapters and I remember him getting to this this is funny it's about 34 years now and I remember him getting to these verses now Kilby you gotta understand Clyde Kilby was a man who should have been a preacher but was a literature teacher and I'm glad he was because I took courses from him and it made all the difference like 
frost taking the path less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Um, because he saw, if he were at the cove right now, he would see a hundred times more than I see. In the trees, in the birds, in the sky, in the moon, in the shading, in the wind. He saw and he felt and he communicated to us through his eyes and his mouth what he saw, what he felt. And all of us, at least I, in that class was awakening to reality. You know, most most people are dead. They don't see anything except their problems. They don't see birds. They don't see lilies. They don't see sunrises. They see red lights and slow cars and broken clutches and aches in their back and they have no sight. What a tragedy. They see television. Kids are just ruined by 10,000 hours of mechanical stuff. Just triviality on TV. So they never have eyes for magnificence. There's no magnificence on television. It's banal. It's silly. Okay, control myself here. And he's, he read this. And then he quoted Chesterton. He referred to Chesterton, who said, one of the most childlike things about God is that he does things again and again and again with joy and never gets tired of them. One of the marks of a child is, do it again, Daddy. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again, Daddy. And they just never seem to stop. And you're so tired. And then he said, and one of the things God does that he never tires of is make the sun come up every morning. Now, being the naturalist 20th century Darwinian that I was, it never occurred to me that God made the sun come up. It comes up. It just comes up. Just like a machine. A little machine, it goes bloop, 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 bloop. And you don't stand at the machine and say, whoa, look, it's doing it again and again. Well, this little, this little digital clock, there's a little thing going beep, beep, beep. I don't go, woo! Look at that. Did it again and again. Well, now, on a lower level, I really should, because that's really quite remarkable. I have no idea how that <laughs> happens. There might be a little man in there just going, something like that. So I, but with regard to the sun, have you commanded the morning? I command the morning every day. Keep turning. Turn. Every day. Clouds be here, not there. Make this pink, not that orange. Clouds do this. God's doing that. God's doing that. Don't be a naturalist. Be a theist. Believe in God. Believe in God and that he both created and sustains and governs skies. And everything else we're going to look at here. That's what this is about. God declaring his godness over seas and earth and dawn. So, if you want to be childlike, 
get up every morning. I saw it happen this morning. I don't know which direction we are here. I'm lost, but I'm up in one of those cabins up there and I'm standing out on the deck just waiting, watching. And there it came up over the mountain, just like the moon did the other night when I was walking home. And what I ought to say at that moment is, he did it again. Go to verse 16. God focuses on uh, the depth of the sea this time. The land. Job. You have never even been to the bottom of the ocean. I won't read it. I'll just make this comment. You'll never even been to the bottom of the ocean or around the world. And you think you can argue with God. Now in the last chapter, last half of chapter 38, he shifts from the world, earth, sea, dawn, depth of the sea. uh, And now he talks about the world above. Verses 19 to 21, God queries Job about the origin of light and dark. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? So you don't know where light comes from. And you don't know how to create it, how to do it. But I do, Job. Verses 22 to 30 talks about snow and hail and rain and frost. Do you know any of this, Job? Do you know how to store up hail? In one of those Godward Life books, I don't remember which volume, I think it's the second volume. I've got, I've got a chapter in there called Rain. The mystery of rain or something. I mean, have you ever thought, this is hail, have you ever thought about how much a six inch rainfall for several hours over a space of say 10 or 20 miles weighs? How much that water weighs? I computed it one time. I just did a little computation. I don't have it in my head. But we're talking billions and billions of tons of water probably came down on Minnesota a week ago around the Twin Cities. My my basement flooded. My tenant emailed me and said, Oh, what a storm we had. It was glorious. However... <laughs> My study is soaked. They they rent our downstairs duplex. That rain weighed billions of tons. And it was floating in the air. With nothing under it but air. Explain that to me. I have no idea how that works. Is it? Well, it has to do with little particles of dust. And around each little particle of dust... There is a little globule, given a name, and it hangs there, and, and there's lots of them. And, the, and they look sort of white and gray to you from underneath. That's an explanation to how billions of pounds of water stay in the air. That's an explanation. Dust particles and globules. and I have no idea. 
No human being can make billions of pounds and tons of water float in the air. It cannot be done. But God does it. Well, I've lost my place. Where is it? Okay, verses 31 to 33. Constellations now. Now we're really high. We're really high. Pleiades, Orion, Maseroth, the bear. And he says, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? So he points to these constellations that have names already in those days. And if he knew what we knew today about stars and about constellations, about about galaxies, about our galaxy, the Milky Way, a relatively small one among the billions of galaxies, with our little sun, a modest star among the hundred billion stars in our galaxy on a circuit around the galaxy, which will complete its first orbit after 200 million years. And where we are in that, I have no idea. And that's one. And there are, I'm tempted to say, endless, but I think only God is endless. And therefore, the universe is not infinite. God is infinite. But it sure looks infinite as it goes on for light year after light year after light year. Everybody should get into astronomy to have their breath taken away a little bit so that we can see and feel the bigness of our God. So that's what he's doing here with Job. He just keeps asking him these questions so that Job begins to feel smaller and smaller and more ignorant and more powerless hour by hour as he is queried. Rain again in verses 34 to 38. Can you make it rain? Do you know how to whistle for the lightning? Isn't that a great image? God whistles the other night. I was up. I saw the lightning show at 1230 night before last. God, do it. Do it over Asheville. John's up. He needs a little encouragement. Can you count the clouds with your wisdom? Do my, these are my pastimes. I, I stretch your mind a bit here, Job. So whether he focuses on the earth or the sea or the dawn or the snow or the hail or the constellations or the rain, it's all the, the, the upshot of it all is, Job, you don't know anything. And you are impotent. You can't control any of this. You don't know where they came from. I'm in charge of these things. And if there are that many mysteries at the physical level, Job, I think this is the gist of where he's going. If there are that many mysteries, if you know so little about what you can see and get your hands on, as it were, do you expect really to be able to call me to account for the way I run the moral universe? I think God wants Job, if he were alive today and he saw the scientific advances of computers and the amazing things that have happened since the technological revolution the last 200 years and the computer information revolution the last 15 years, I think God would want us and Job today to say all the marvels of skyscrapers, all the marvels of jet travel and space travel, all the marvels of computer and internet, all the marvels of medicine, all the marvels of transportation, all the marvels of video kinds of things and radio and television, all the marvels 
that have happened in the last hundred years are like the digging of a little hole in the beach and taking a sand pail and going to the ocean of God's wisdom and bringing it and dumping it in the little little crevice that we've made while the tide is rising and we'll one day just move right over it. And we today, we, we moderns, we naturalists, we lovers of human nature, we arrogant people look at the marvels of science and we often say, wow, look at this new computer program. It is first grade for God. Statement by about a million times. <laughs> or an understatement, maybe I should say. God is not impressed with computers. God is not impressed with space travel. He's not impressed with medical technology. He invented it. He holds it in being. He sustains it. He understands every movement of every electron in every molecule everywhere in the universe and guides it, names it. I happen to believe every electron in every atom, in every molecule, in every constellation in this universe has a name assigned by God and is keeping its position by appointment. That's what I believe about God. And the reason I do is because the Bible says he's named the stars. And there just may be about the same number of stars as there are electrons. That'd blow your mind away. And if you blew an electron up, there's probably the same distance between the electrons that there are between the stars. Well, I'm out of my element here. And I love to be out of my element when I'm thinking about what God has done and what God is like. And I think that's what he wants Job to feel. I think he wants Job to just be breathtaking with God. Bow before God and say, okay. And he will say this in just a few minutes. Let's keep going. The world of animals. Now, this is really strange and interesting. Chapter 38, verses 39 to 41. Lions and birds. Who provides the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? You, Job, you provide the birds their food? No, you don't. I do. I make sure the worm is in its place. I make sure the little bug flying through the air is there. I feed ravens. You don't. Chapter 39, verses 1 to 4. Do you know when the mountain goats bring forth? Do you observe the calving of the hinds? So, Job, you got to understand, Job, in the mountains all over the world, there are goats and there are hinds giving birth. And I am the midwife, not you. I watch over the birth of every, what's the baby goat called? Kid? Every kid that's ever birthed by a goat. I watch it. I care for it. And they're all over the world. And I'm there. The Bible says, I mean, Jesus says, not one bird falls to the ground apart from your father. So every little dead bird in an untouched rainforest in Brazil that dies and goes clunk to the ground, God appoints the time and the fall. God is big. 
God runs things in a most remarkable way. Think of it, Job. When a man sees a work of God, does he see all the connections? 10,000 other realities that this relates to? And will you dare to judge me and assess me by your wisdom? Verses 5 to 8, the wild ass. Who has let the wild ass go free? Well, who would even think of asking such a question? God would. Who has let the wild ass go free? You think this ass is wild and unpredictable creature, Job? Guess what? I set him loose. I set him loose. I took the leash off this animal. I designed him to be the way he is. He's the work of my hands. He's quite in order. He looks wild. He's quite in order. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Wild ox, verses 9 to 12. Do you know how to bind him or use him? He is mine. Stupid ostrich. I promised you this one last night. Verses 13 to 18. Let's turn there. I'm not going to summarize this. I promised I'd look at it. We got to let the ostrich have her place here. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? That's a difficult translation there. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain. Yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom. He made her stupid. God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. This is a foolish bird. This is a dumb bird. You watch some animals like this ostrich and you say, well, why don't you take care of your eggs? Sit on the eggs. Don't let them be stepped on or taken. And she just goes flapping away somewhere. And you think, oh, the world's out of control. And God says, I made her stupid. She's not out of control. I just want some stupidity in the world. There are parabolic reasons for this. You watch this animal, you'll learn how not to be. And other things. Do you, you see the point? The point is, Job, look at everything. You, you think some things are out of control you think some things are chaos and meaningless and, and foolish? I'm on top of those things. I'm on top of those things. So even though it's funny and it's, it's just, I mean, there are a lot of funny animals in the world. I just, I'll look you in on a little secret. I just subscribed again to Ranger Rick. I did. Ostensibly for Talitha, my daughter. But I read it first before she gets it. Actually, I don't read it much because it's so evolutionary. But I look at the pictures and the pictures is all I need. God has created one crazy world. I mean, just the most weird creatures. It's just 
and, and a lot of them live in places where nobody sees them. They're just discovering them at the bottom of seven miles of ocean or the top of a mountain. And God's been enjoying them for centuries. And, and the angels have been looking and saying, that's really weird, God. <laughs> Way to go. You know, fish that spit spiders out of the trees and eat them when they fall in the water, you know, like then. And so, who thought that up? Or, or spiders who take little bubbles of air down under the water, build their nests at the bottom, and then go up and get air and bring it down and put it under there and live down there. What possible evolutionary process would would create such a crazy idea of of making life so hard for yourself that you bring air under your little little eight legs down and and while you're working to make some little silvery thing you you put the bubble under there and you go up and and you breathe as much as you can and then you go up and get some more that is that is that's just god lavishing his infinite overflow of creativity on the world so i i commend uh, National Geographic and Ranger Rick and other books like that just for worship's sake. Just for worship's sake. To enlarge your capacity for the lavish creativity of God. Even stupid animals. And I think there are things for us to learn. I don't think Jesus said consider the lilies or consider the ravens for nothing. Consider it. Consider it. Look at it. Look at it. Look at this bird. And learn a few things. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. She lays up in the summer, so she has in the winter. Look at the ants. Study ants. You study any ants? Hawk, verse 26. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and the birds and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Well, lions, mountain goats, wild ass, wild ox, stupid ostrich, war horse, flight of the hawk and the eagle. The point seems to be, through these rhetorical questions, Job, you don't know any. And Job, you can't do anything about these things. You didn't make them, I made them. You can't see how they work or change them, I can. And so Job, back off and be more humble. Okay. Let me think. I got so carried away on so many of those, I'm using up my time on less essentials here. And I'm supposed to move into a time of taking it home here. Let me see how to wrap up Job before I do that. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. This is the beginning of chapter 40. Job answered the Lord, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job is now humbled by God's speech to him. 
Again, God challenges him in verses 6 to 9 of 40. Gird up your loins like a man. I'll question you. You declare to me, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? In other words, he puts over against Job's accusations that God's his enemy is mistreating him unjustly. God's power. But is it his raw power? Is the lesson of Job might makes right? You do what I say and stop questioning him because I'm God and I have power over all these animals and over you. Is it that simple? I don't think so. Verses 10 to 14. Deck yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour forth the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone that is proud and abase him. This is God challenging Job to do what he does. Look on him who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Can you do that, Job? Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that you own right, your own right hand can give you the victory. And Job, of course, can't do any of that. But notice that emphasis on pride. God is not whimsical or capricious or arbitrary in the use of his power so that all he can say when he does what he does is, I'm God and I'm mighty and therefore what I do is right. Might makes right. Not what he says. He says, I use my might in a particular way, namely to abase the proud and exalt the humble so that the way I work in the world corresponds to the excellence of my name. And I deserve worship and I deserve love and I deserve allegiance. You don't. And therefore get me out of the dock and put yourself in the dock and worship me. Don't expect me to bow to your judgments of my morality. And I think that's the final say about God's righteousness. It is his upholding his own value. What he does accords with his value. That's his answer. And what Job should do is submit. And so we, we're closing now. Here we are, chapter 42, and we're going to watch Job submit in three regards. Job 42, verses 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. So there's Job submitting to sovereignty. No purpose of thine can be thwarted. Therefore, the devil hasn't struck me and nature hasn't struck me. No animals strike me apart from your purpose. For no purpose of yours can ever be thwarted. That's his first act of submission. Here's the second one in verse 3. He quotes God like we saw. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? God asks. And here's the answer. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. This is the submission to the wisdom of God. First to the power and sovereignty of God. And now he's submitting to the knowledge and wisdom of God. I didn't understand. Your knowledge is so far above mine. I didn't know what I was saying. And his third act of submission. Verses four to six. Hear and I will speak. I will question you. And you will declare to me. Now, that's God talking. Now, here's Job's response. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. 
But now my eye sees thee. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here's Job finally. He was in ashes at the beginning, submissive to God and saying the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He becomes temporarily rebellious and accuses God. And and now God reveals to him, Elihu and God make their case for what God is really up to in purifying, caring, loving, bringing him back. And now he humbles himself and repents in dust and ashes. And he is restored and uh, God I think symbolically for us restores him all of his children and and uh, all of his animals. Not to say that everybody who repents will get rich. That's clearly not the case. That's not the point of the book. But to say that in the end, in the end it will be true. Paul said, I, I do not count the sufferings of this life worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed hereafter. So in the big biblical theology picture, chapter 42 and its restoration is a promise. Whether in this life or in the next, you will be rewarded. You have never lost anything in the path of obedience that will not be restored to you 10,000 fold in the age to come. So what are we to learn? I'll just restate the submissions. One. Believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, like verses 1 and 2 say. His purpose can't be thwarted. Two, believe that in everything he does, he's good and right, and his knowledge surpasses your own. Three, repent, if you should, in dust and ashes, and pray that God would humble you under his mighty hand. And fourth, be satisfied in him and his holy will. One closing illustration before I shift into the, the final few minutes. You know George Mueller, the uh, British orphanage founder from a hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago now. George Mueller got answers to prayer in most remarkable ways. You read his autobiography, he would have nothing to feed these kids, and he would get on his face before God and pray, get up on his knees and go outside and there'd be a milk truck there, you know, that sort of thing. Then his wife got rheumatic fever and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and she died. And amazingly, he preached at her funeral and he took as his text, the Lord is good and doeth good from the Psalms. And he had three points. Point one, the Lord was good in giving her to me. Point two, the Lord was good in leaving her with me so long. Point three, the Lord was good in taking her from me. That was his sermon. You should read it. Get his autobiography and read the whole sermon. I quote a piece of it that is so crucial. I miss her in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly father. I seek by perfect submission 
to his holy will to glorify him and kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. So, you know, when I heard your testimonies a while ago, I, I knew, I heard what I knew. This room is filled with pain. This room is filled with pain. We find ways to live with our pain. You know, you can only weep for so many months and years for a wayward kid, right? After nine years, or ten years, or twelve years, you have to laugh again sometime. You have to lift your hands and worship and praise God sometime. And so we've all learned ways of living with our pain. Our six-year-old's gone. Our husband's gone. Our health going. You got to live with it. And I hope, I just pray that something in Job here and what I've spoken, along with all the other good things God is teaching you. I'm not the only teacher and book of Job's not the only book. God will put under you and enable you, all of you, to stand and not call God to account, but to say, the Lord is good in giving that to me and good in leaving her, him, it with me and good in taking it from me. And I don't understand it all, but I submit and kiss the hand that has thus afflicted me. Now, I'm technically out of time and I'm supposed to, to, to call for some commitment here and, and to uh, send you home with some practical things. I don't know what else I could say. <laughs> what I've said, but I did have more to say here, and I'm trying to think what of it I should say. Tell me my my deadline, leader. To, a minute ago, right? I will take no more than ten more minutes and tell you these three stories. Here, here's my effort to just help you take affliction and benefit from it. The story of John Bunyan, first of all. Remember John Bunyan? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was a Baptist pastor 300 years ago. He was put in jail. 12 years he was in jail. His oldest daughter, little girl, was blind. When she would come to visit him with her mom and three siblings in prison, he said it was like pulling flesh off my bones. Like pulling flesh off my bones to take my little blind daughter in my arms and then send her back away because he could have gotten out of jail any time he wanted if he had not preached. Very few people in the world have blessed God for prison. Solzhenitsyn did, remember? Solzhenitsyn, Gulag Archipelago, said, I bless you, O prison, for having been my life. He became a believer in prison. And Bunyan spoke the same way. The prison became his life. It produced the pilgrim's progress. And I won't take the time to read the long quote that I had there. Second illustration. William Cooper. From 1731 to 1800 he lived. Maybe you haven't heard of William Cooper. And that's okay. He was a poet and a hymn writer. And he wrote. There is a fountain filled with blood. He wrote. Oh for a closer walk with thee. And he wrote. One of my favorite hymns. God moves in a mysterious way. What you don't know about William Cooper probably. Is that he was chronically depressed. Brother. 
and he tried to kill himself at least five times. And God miraculously spared him over and over again. He, he was in, 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 um, put in an institution for a long time where he met God in a powerful way. It did give him some relief, but not much. I really do believe two centuries ago there were constitutional elements to this. There were biological or heretical elements to William Cooper's uh, struggle with depression though there were no medications in those days, and he fought it through. And the person who helped him a lot was John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And these two together produced enough to keep us all singing for a long time. And the hymn that he wrote until two weeks ago was hanging on the mantle in our room, and now it's hanging in the dining room. And it says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Storm, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Now that was written by a man who tried to commit suicide a half a dozen times, struggled with depression all his life, and it has been feeding my soul for some 20 years, and I bless God for William Cooper's pain. God has some blessing in mind for your pain. He has a purpose. He has a design for your life. He has a design for your ministry. Your pain is meant to be a blessing to somebody. Just read the first chapter of 2 Corinthians about Paul's view of his own sufferings for the sake of the, of the church. And the last thing I want to leave you with is the third story. Bunyan first, Cooper second, and Jesus third. In where I began. Remember what I said back at the beginning that even though Christ is not in the book of Job explicitly... Christ bought by his blood every benefit that you receive from the book of Job. Here is one of the great threats in suffering. Our consciences rise up and condemn us and we feel we must have done something terribly wrong or the sediment in our life now must be really thick and it's going to damn me because I am so guilty for so much pride and I have been angry at God so many times or I have spoken badly to people and lost my patience and on and on the accusation will come, especially as you lie in the hospital bed and you wonder if this is the hour or tomorrow will be the hour when I stand before the living God of infinite holiness who has hell for unbelievers and heaven for and we wonder if we're in that category. And I just want to make sure you hear loud and clear the gospel here. And I'll take one verse to give it to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin for your sake 
in order that in him you might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is a story of a son of God who leads an absolutely flawless life of righteousness. So that we who have lived a life of continual sinning may have a substitute, not only so that the death can become our death, but the life can become our life. And the life of righteousness we fail to live, that righteousness can be given to us. And the death that we did live out, or the sin, can be put on Him. And He lives our life and He dies our death so that we may experience His life forever and in Him have God's favor forever and having died with Him, not have to die forever in hell. The Gospel is a grand exchange that God wrought out outside of us in our subjective self-condemning hearts outside of us in history on a mountain once upon a time called Calvary where a righteousness was performed for all His people and a death was died for all His people so that all of our guilt is paid for and all of our failure to be righteous is supplied in the righteousness of Jesus. And then the big question is, how do you get connected? And the answer is, Romans 3.28, we hold or we affirm that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith, trust, give it up, be helpless, so that when your suffering comes, and all the accusations arise that your sediment must be too thick, or you must have done some terrible evil, you will not only have Job to parry those accusations in measure, but in the end, in the end, your final hope will not be that you have lived an adequate life. Your final hope will be you have an adequate Savior. Now, Here's the way I want you to affirm your faith or not. I don't know whether you're a believer in this room or not. And uh, Pastor Al's going to be here. I'll stay around here. And if you want to talk about that, we would love to talk about that. But there's a hymn, and I ask him to put it on the overhead here. And we're going to sing. Marty, you want to help us with music? Why don't you stand? The reason I chose this hymn is because if you sing it and mean it, you're saved. This is an affirmation of faith. And it also wraps into it so much of what we have said. So Marty's going to lead us. Do not sing it if you don't mean it. But if you sing it and mean it, then you're included in the righteousness of Jesus. And you're a beneficiary of all the truth that we've seen from the book of Job. So Marty, you take us from here.